Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 4. We've been reading through the book of Ephesians. And today we're on chapter 4. We're reading the first 16 verses of the scripture. Hear now the word of God. It's Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love amen this is a reading of god's word please join me in prayer father thank you for your word your word is life and truth and hope and i pray that this morning would uh you would speak to us through your word in just a personal way in a powerful way in a way that would give us direction in our lives, in a way that would inspire us and transform us. So I pray that your word would be power to us. I pray that your word would be light to us, especially if we feel like we're in a dark place. So lead us through your word. Speak to us through your servant. And may it lead us closer to your heart. We long for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've just been joining us, we've been looking through a series of sermons. And we're looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And we're calling it the blueprint because it's like the big picture. What is God doing in the world? And we've been saying the blueprint, the plan is God is making everything right. He's saying everything that is broken in the world. And he's making it right. He's bringing the chaos into order He's bringing the distance from God and he's bringing us close together. He is restitching a, a fractured society and he's building a new people of God. And this morning, in, starting in chapter 4, we talked about the big picture. Chapter 4, Paul talks about, well, now how do we live that out? That's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in the world. But starting in chapter 4, he gets really practical and he says, That idea, the big picture, the blueprint, should lead you into a life of total transformation. And it starts to get really practical. And this idea of living out what God has done for us is really important, especially for Christian people today. Um, I was reading a book by Gabe Lyons. He's the director 
of a research group called the Barna Group. And he's been researching Christian people uh, for many years. And he's done all kinds of surveys through the years. And he says in his book, Unchristian, that in all of his surveys that he's done all throughout the years, uh, he has tracked, he says non-Christians are almost no different, Christians rather are almost no different than non-Christians in their behavior. He says in the ways that they uh, watch porn, in the ways that they uh, lie, in the ways that they get into physical altercations, he says the divorce rates between Christians and non-Christians, when you compare Christian behavior with non-Christian behavior down the line, he says there's almost no statistical difference between them. And he says one of the reasons why the Christian witness is so weak is that non-Christians can see that Christians are no different than they are. Uh, And he writes about the fact that Christians talk a big game, but their life is often no different. And today, we want to look at the idea that believing in God and being born again should lead to a life that is transformed. It should lead to a life that is changed. Today, we want to see the power to do that is the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the idea of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit, when you get the Holy Spirit, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it does and it should change everything in your life. And we're going to look at some practical things starting from this week. And we're going to say if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it changes your relationships. You begin to have very diverse relationships. It changes uh, your, it takes you from self-centeredness to a life of service. And finally, it fills you. The Spirit's work is to make you more like Jesus. Today, as we look at the work of the Spirit, we're going to look at the unity of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul wants us to be Spirit-filled, and that Spirit leads us into all of these different areas. And the first one is unity. The first one is practically diverse relationships. And starting today, we're trying to answer the big question, uh, what difference does Jesus make? What difference does he make to a marriage? What difference does he uh, make to my everyday life, my mentality? And today, we're starting to look at the difference that the Spirit makes. Is following Jesus today, does that only change going to a service once a week? Is that the only difference Jesus makes? Maybe drop in on a community group. Every now and again, is that the only difference Jesus makes? Or is it something much more profound? In Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, this is what Paul says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Starting out in this chapter, Paul talks about uh, himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He could have said, as an apostle, I command you to do these things. But he says, no, as a prisoner of the Lord. And he says that because at the beginning of the series, we said that the apostle Paul writes this letter from prison. And he reminds them of his sufferings to help them to think that to follow Jesus involves suffering, involves hardship. There's a cost to following Jesus. And he starts out with that. And he comes to them humbly as someone who has suffered and is suffering. And then he reminds them to live according 
uh, man, in a manner worthy of your calling. In the first three chapters, Paul says that reminds them of who they are and where they came from. He says, when you were dead in your sin, uh, we, were, we were, before we met Christ, dead in our sins, lost in the world, following the course of the world. But then he says, but God, when you were dead, he made you alive. When you were lost in your sin, he forgave you. When you were at the bottom in the depths of hell, God you, took you to the heights of heaven. It's all by grace, not by grit. It's all because of what he has done for you. And he says, now as God's people who have been given all of this grace, now live according, live a life worthy of that calling. Live a life worthy of that calling. And how we live a life worthy of that calling is by being spirit-filled. The spirit is the power. Uh, The spirit is calling us to live according to that calling. How does the spirit do that? Well, the first thing the spirit does is bring unity. Ephesians 4, 3, it says... Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the spirit's desire for us is to live in unity. And this unity is especially important. Um, If you've been tracking with us in the book of Ephesians, unity is important because the last chapter, Paul talked about how diverse the early church was. Uh, The early church was comprised, uh, had divisions in it. Chapter 3, we talked about the division between Gentiles and Jewish people. That they had a history of uh, racism. They have a history of culture clashes. There was a wall, a literal wall of hostility that separated them. And Paul says, well, Jesus broke down that wall. And he let us in on the mystery, which is Gentiles or non-Jews, they're fellow heirs. They're brothers. They're sisters. And together, God is calling a new people of God. In the first century, we said that the early church was called a new race. The early centuries, they couldn't make sense of the the Christian church because it wasn't just one race. It wasn't just one class of people. It was a diverse, multiracial, multiethnic community. And Paul is now saying he wants the church, which is multiracial, Jews and Gentiles, people from different regions. Now, what Paul is saying is to live in unity. Why? It says in verse 4, what brings us together is we're one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul repeats this word, one. You've got one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that thing that unites these disparate people together is God, is your common faith. And that is always the key, what brings us together. What Paul is saying, he's not telling this diverse church, you know, work on your unity. I want you to get more united. What he's saying to this early church is that you are already united. You're united in Christ. You already have unity in God, in the common faith and baptism vows that you gave recognize your unity not something that you work on something you recognize you are already united you know after the service i'm teaching a seminar i hope that you can make it on faith and politics and i think it's an important topic today because it's become such a volatile politics has become such a volatile volatile subject 
And one of the reasons I believe that politics has become so volatile is that people have now over-identified with their political party. Some thinkers and writers believe that since God, the, a belief in God, an identity in God has faded away, what's replaced it is politics. Now people, they, over, they identify themselves by their political party so that when you attack their politics, you're attacking them. You're attacking a person, their identity, that politics have become personal to people. It's who they are. They judge their goodness or badness based on their political affiliation. They will attack you when you attack their party because it's deeply personal. And that's part of the things that have gone wrong in our country. But as Christians, what Paul is saying is that you're not identified by your politics. You're not identified by your gender or your race or your culture. But we have a new identity. Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, says that we should feel more at home with people who share our faith than who share, but not our politics. He says, even more so than people who share your political beliefs, but not your faith. And he, say, he says, things have gone wrong if you're more comfortable with people who share your politics, but not your faith. He, just, he says, you should feel way more comfortable or at home with people who share your faith, but they have radically different political beliefs. And he says that our chief identity is not our politics, it's not our race, it's not our culture, but the commonality that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4, one God, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And that's the power to draw us together, to recognize that. You know, here at City Light, we're blessed to have uh, a diverse group of people, but diversity is not enough. We need in that diversity unity. We need unity in that diversity. Paul says something incredible in verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statute of the fullness of God. And one of the things he's saying in that is that unity is so important because only when we are unified with a disparate group of people can we become mature. That's how important it is. It's, it's so important to have diverse relationships and to be unified in midst of that disparate, those disparate relationships that that's the only way you're going to get mature in the Christian life. Imagine if in the church uh, you had all kinds of relationships with diverse people that were helping you to grow. That older Christians, you treated them as mothers or fathers in the faith. That there were people that you looked up to, that prayed for you, supported you, gave you advice. Imagine if you had in the church all these different relationships with people of different races and classes, and they challenged you, encouraged you, prayed for you, supported you, spoke into your life. Imagine if you had younger people in the church that you mentored, you prayed for, you encouraged, you exhorted. How rich would your life be? How rich would your spiritual life be if you had all of these relationships, people of different ages, classes, backgrounds, races and cultures, your life, you'd have all these different perspectives. You'd have all this support and wisdom in your life. And what Paul is saying is that you're going to grow to be a mature believer 
when you live in that kind of unity and that kind of community. And it's a beautiful picture. Paul is saying that the Spirit's desire is to bring that kind of community together. That's what the Spirit is doing. He's bringing that unity. But here's the second thing. Not only that, the Spirit is working in your life and He's gifting you so that you would serve others. The Spirit's desire is not only to maintain unity, but to give a spiritual strength for service. The word Holy Spirit in the, uh, in the New Testament, the, word, the Greek word for spirit is ruach. And that was a word uh, that was used literally for wind. In the Greek, it's holy wind. And think about what that metaphor of wind is. Wind is something invisible. You can't see the wind. Yet it's powerful. So powerful you can harness the power of wind for energy. Uh, Paul is saying that the spirit is invisible. You cannot see it, yet it's powerful in our life. The spirit is our strength. The spirit is the energy that we need to live. What does the spirit do? Well, one of the things the spirit does is that he gifts his church with abilities and blessings that enable us to serve. In Ephesians 4, 7 to 8, this is what it says, but grace was given To each one of us, he says, to each one of us, we've been given this, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he didn't leave us alone. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says, if I go, I'm going to send you somebody. And Jesus, in his ascension, sent us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us gifts Gives us gifts, gives us abilities, gives us talents that have been spirit-filled, which enable us to serve his church. In Ephesians 4.11, he talks about this gift is given first to leaders. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And what this class of people all have in common is that they've been given word gifts, These word gifts are not the most important gifts in the church, but they are gifts that direct the church and the uh, the use of the other gifts. Word gifts were given to uh, pastors and teachers and evangelists so that they can explain the word of God. They can protect the church from error, from going off track, away from the will of God. But the gifts of the Spirit are not limited to officers. They're given to each individual Christian in the church. If you look at other lists that Paul has of spiritual gifts, uh, there are five other lists, and they include other gifts that Christians have, such as generosity, encouragement, and administration. And if you look at the collective work of Paul, he says that every single Christian in the church has been given a specific gift. Why? Well, in verse 12, he lists the reasons. Why are these gifts given to men and women? Three reasons. For the equipment of the saints, for the work of ministry, and finally to build up the body of Christ. To equip the saints uh, for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. There are two big metaphors that Paul is using here with spiritual gifts. One of the metaphors is the metaphor of building. It's like if you're building a house from the ground up. uh, In our... in, our, uh, in the neighborhood I live in, in Eagle Rock, uh, we're seeing all of these houses that are torn down and brand new ho- houses go up. 
And I'm like witnessing that, this and seeing a house go up from the ground up. And it's interesting to see. It's a long process to build a house. You need architects to get a blueprint. You need engineers to oversee it. You need a foreman to lead a crew of skilled workers. Uh, you need electricians. You need plumbers. You need craftsmen. You need all of these people with different skill sets to come together to build a house from the ground up. Paul is saying this is the same thing in the church. If you want to build a church, you do need pastors to teach the word. You need elders to shepherd the congregation. You need deacons to help the material needs of people. You need administrators to organize the work of the church. You need people with the gift of hospitality to open up their homes. You need people with the gift of prayer, people with the gift of encouragement and counseling to walk with people, to love on them, to shepherd them. A church cannot function except that everyone who has a, everyone has to use and exercise their gifts. In a church where only pastors and staff members lead the church and use their gifts, what happens in those kind of churches is after the service is over, all the ministry stops. That's it. Pastor spoke. Staff led that service. And after the... After the benediction, all the ministry ends. But in a church where everyone is using their gifts, after the service ends, ministry continues. People, are, people open up their homes to each other. People are praying for each other. People are encouraging each other. People are counseling and praying for one another. And that's the, that's the vision God gives us in the church. The church is not a service. It's a community where everyone is using their gifts to minister to each other. The final metaphor that Paul uses is the idea of, a, it's a body metaphor, a body that is growing. In verse 12 to 14, Paul says, we've been given these spiritual gifts so that we would grow into the fullness of what God has given to us. In verse 14, so we would no longer be babes or children, that each of us would mature and grow. And Paul uses the image. He says, when you use your gifts, uh, we're going to grow into the fullness. We're a baby growing into an adult. When you are born again, if you're a born again Christian, it's an amazing, powerful, beautiful thing, but you're still a baby when you're born again. And the idea is that you cannot stay a baby. You got to grow into the fullness of what God called you to be. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, uh, one of the things that characterize babies is that they're, very, they're super needy. It takes a lot of work. They're super self-centered because they, they are babies. You know, we have a lot of new parents at our church. And one way to recognize a new parent, this is a way to recognize a new parent, is that they got bags under their eyes. You know, what, is a def- what, a, what does a new parent look like? They look like they need some sleep. I mean, because it's a lot of work being a new parent. There's a lot of sleepless hours. You lose a lot. A baby, a newborn baby sucks all of your energy. Uh, it ruins your social life. A newborn baby is exhausting because babies just take and take and take. They take your life. They take your energy. They take your sleep. They take your resources. They take your money. And they never say thanks. You know, they do all of that. And I tell our newborn, our uh, parents of newborn children... And I tell them, I encourage them, hang in there, it's going to get better. 
you know, hang in that this baby is going to get less and less needy. You know, soon this baby will be a toddler. And this toddler is going to get potty trained. This toddler is going to be learned to, to, to eat by themselves and brush their teeth. And it's going to get, life's going to get a little easier. Just hang in there. You know, one of the definitions of a child, children are very self-centered. It's all about them. They can't think about other people. But children will, will eventually grow. They'll get self-sufficient, and they will learn to look out for other people. My oldest daughter just turned 11, and I've seen this in our own life, and it's a beautiful thing to see how she's grown out of her self-centeredness. Last year, she was researching the L.A. River, and uh, she was researching it, and she said to me, Dad, how come there's no water in the L.A. River? You know, sometimes your kids ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. She's like, why is there no water in the L.A. River? You know, I, I had no idea. You know, sometimes my kids ask me a question that I have no answer to, like, why is the sky blue? I mean, I had no idea. Now, and I was telling my daughter Zadie, I was like, well, you know, when it rains, there's water in the L.A. River. There's, there's water sometimes. And uh, she started researching it, and she realized that the L.A. River, though it doesn't have a lot of water, there's a lot of trash in it. And she, she last year, she decided she's going to organize her friends to clean up the L.A. River. She partnered with an organization that is trying to, to care for the L.A. River. She, she got a bunch of her friends, people from her school, to volunteer to clean up the L.A. River. You know, it's an amazing thing. So very, I was very proud of her. She's grown out of her self-centeredness. She's starting to look out at the world. She has a heart for the environment. She has a heart for justice. And these are things that are amazing when kids can grow out of that. You know, one of the definitions, uh, and that, that applies, that's the metaphor Paul is using for spirituality. He says the definition of a spiritual child is that it's all about you. It's just about my needs, where my, how my needs going to get met. And what Paul is saying is that you have to grow out of that so that you're not a child tossed by the winds and by life, that there's a stability, there's a growth and that the way you grow out of that is that by not being self-centered, but by now seeking to serve other people. A spiritual, mature Christian has grown out of their self-centeredness. Now they're always asking, how can I serve? How can I love someone else? How can, how can I be a blessing to other believers? And it's always asking the Spirit, Spirit, can you give me more gifts? Not for myself, but so that I can serve people in need. Maybe there's someone with a hurting marriage, and I feel like I don't have the words to speak, to counsel, to care for, but God give me gifts to minister to this person. Maybe it just means being present in their life, maybe giving me wisdom to speak the appropriate words. Paul is saying that the Spirit's desire is to grow you into mature manhood or womanhood, into the person that God desires you to be someone once said that a Christ, the christian life is like riding a bicycle bicycle you have to either go forward or you're going to fall off the spirit is moving and he wants to grow you some of us are spiritually stagnated we're spiritual infants and we're not growing and the spirit's desire is to grow us out of our self-centeredness into servanthood Spirit's desire is to grow us from isolation into community. Spirit wants to bring us, to nurture us. And here's the final thing that Spirit wants to do to us. Spirit wants 
to make us more like Jesus. And that's the final thing. What does the Spirit want to do in our life? Well, He's trying to bring us into community, to diverse relationships. Uh, The Spirit is trying to grow us out of our isolation and self-centeredness. But the Spirit, the final work of the Spirit is to make us more like Jesus. And we see that in verse 15. It says, rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. And Paul says that the way that we're growing, the Spirit wants to connect us to Jesus. He's the head of the body. This idea of unity is uh, diversity and unity is the image of the body, but Christ is the head of the church. He directs everything. Uh, The role of the Spirit is to make us more like Jesus, connect us to Jesus. And even when you look at the characteristics that uh, Paul has, verse 2 he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And even all of these attributes, they are essentially chief characteristics of Jesus himself. What the Spirit is trying to do is make us more like Jesus. When it says humility and gentleness, those are two things that ultimately characterize Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about himself. But in the rare time in Matthew that Jesus describes himself, like he self-describes, this is what I'm like. What does he say in Matthew eleven twenty nine? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's amazing. He says, this is who I am. Let me, let me describe myself. Uh, other people try to define Jesus, but Jesus says, no, let me define. Let me define myself. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and I'm humble. He's God incarnate, come down to, took on flesh. And he says, I'm come, I've come, and I'm gentle. I'm patient with you. Think about how patient Jesus is with our sins. He's so patient with us. He waits for us. uh, Think about his love for us, that he would... He would take our punishment, our pain on that cross and his grace to us and his love for us that God himself would come down and be a servant and take our debt and take our sin upon himself. The spirit uh, is trying to make you more like that so that your life would be a life that is sacrificial. Your life would be filled with humility your life would have all the characteristics of Jesus himself. And as we close, here's my question for you. Are you grieving the Spirit or are you keeping in step with the Spirit? In Ephesians 4, uh, verse 30, this is what it says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? To grieve the Holy Spirit means to live in opposition to what the Spirit is trying to do. It means to live in opposition to what the Spirit is trying to do. Grieving the Holy Spirit essentially means to live in sin. Sin is antisocial. That's the definition of sin I like to use. Sin is antisocial. It doesn't like people. It likes to live in the dark. It doesn't want anyone else to find out. Sin is disconnected from other people. 
what, what is the Spirit trying to do? The Spirit's trying to take us into community. Spirit's trying to shine a light on us, bring us into fellowship. Sin is self-centered. Sin is all about me. I'm not getting my needs met. I need more. And I need more attention. I need more resources. I need people to pay attention more, care for me. What is the Spirit trying to do? He's trying to take you out of that into a life of service, into a life of sacrifice. Sin is ultimately straying from the love of God. The straying from God's heart and his love. What is the Spirit trying to do? The Spirit is trying to bring you into the presence of God. Bring you, connecting you to the love of God. To reject the, grieve the Holy Spirit means to live antisocial. It means to live self-centered. And it means to live away from the presence and the love of God. That's what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is grieved when we doubt God's love. John Owen, the great uh, Puritan preacher, says, Nothing hurts the heart of God more when you doubt his love. That grieves the Holy Spirit. When you feel like God doesn't love you, he's not concerned about you. When you live isolated from other people, other Christians, when you live self-centered, when you're caring only about yourself, that, those things grieve the Holy Spirit. So here's the flip side. Well, what is the alternative to that? Well, this is what Galatians 5.25 says, and we'll close with this. And it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He says, instead of grieving the Spirit, it says, keep in step with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit is, if you look through the Bible, the Spirit is always on the move. It's always on the go. Spirit's one of those people like who is always on the go. They're always going from one thing to the next. And the Spirit says, if you want to hang with me, you've got to move with me. You, you cannot stay stagnant and where you are. If you want to keep, if you want to be with the Spirit, you've got to keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit's moving. It's growing. It's going places. And the only way to have the Holy Spirit is you got to roll with the Spirit. you got to walk. you got to move with the Spirit. you got to get out of your comfort zone into places and with people who you're not comfortable with. you got to get out of your routine, and you got to go into places of discomfort. God wants to move you. He wants to get you to places you have never been before. That's what it means to walk with the Spirit, to get to places... You've never been before, and that's going to be uncomfortable at first. The Spirit is always on the move, and the question I want to close with is, where's the Spirit going, though? It's always on the move, but where's it going? Well, in verse 30, Ephesians 4, we hear the answer, the day of redemption. You know, the reason the Spirit's always on the move is that it's taking us to glory. Uh, the Spirit wants to prepare us for that day of glory. The Spirit is always future, by the way. It's always future because the future is glory, the day of redemption, a day of perfection, of love. And the Spirit is always trying to take us there. The Spirit's always trying to take us to this place of love, of infinite beauty, of peace, the presence of God. That's what the Spirit's trying to do. And every time we walk with the Spirit, part of the future breaks into our life now. Part of the love that's infinite, we're going to get some of that now. Part of the peace of heaven and the day of redemption breaks into our life now so that we can experience that now. So Paul says, stop grieving the spirit. Stop living isolated and alone. Get into the spirit. Walk in step with the spirit and you will experience glory. Please join me in prayer.
Father, we come to you this morning, and so many of us live very isolated. So many of us live in darkness. So many of us live self-centered. So many of us live so far from your love that we can't even imagine it. But this morning, you are calling us by your spirit, and you're convicting us by your spirit to come back home. And Lord, we ask that you give us courage uh, to come into community. Ask that you would give us your spirit to get out of ourselves and to sacrifice and to serve and to love and to care. But more than anything else, help us to come back home to you and help us to come back to Jesus, our brother who died for us, to experience the love of God. You're, you're our Father and your love for us is infinite and never changing. Pray that we would experience that. And I pray that at City Light we would be a foretaste of a, the community in heaven that is so diverse but so unified, perfect in love, full of grace and truth. And pray that we can be that people. Give us grace as we know that's a whole process. And we give you thanks that you're so patient with us that even though we're very far away from that, you walk with us. And thank you that the Holy Spirit is not a mile away, but it's always a step ahead of us. So we pray that we can take a step with the Spirit this, this, this morning. Thank you that you're faithful to us. Thank you that you're patient with us. And pray that we would be led by your Spirit back to our true home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.